0: As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, by Your Spirit, through the Word, send out Your light and Your truth and let them lead us. Let them bring us to Your holy hill and to Your dwelling. Then we will come to the cross of Christ, to the Son of God, our exceeding joy, and we will praise You, O triune God, our God. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and please turn with me in God's word to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, if you're visiting with us in our evening services, we've been considering a series through the book of Joshua and we've come to Joshua chapter 5. You'll find that on, I think, page 230 of most of our Pew Bibles. It's the sixth book of the Bible, right between Deuteronomy and Judges. And we've come to chapter 5 and we want to read this chapter together And consider this portion of Scripture from God's Word. So beginning our reading at Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own Word. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath-Arloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came up out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, Well, we've been considering this book of Joshua and for the last couple chapters, the main point has been the crossing of the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And now that we are in the land of Canaan, we might expect uh, the fight for Canaan to begin immediately. They have now crossed over into enemy territory and we might expect that the battle of conquest would immediately begin, but we're told that that doesn't happen and we're really told why that doesn't happen in verse 1, because nobody in Canaan wants to fight with them. Uh, They're too afraid of what God has done, too afraid of this people. Um, And God uses that for a purpose, because before God's people become engaged in this conquest that'll take so much time in the rest of the book, uh, God has a particular purpose for His people. Um, There is something that has to happen to them before they begin this war of conquest, before they carry forward the purpose God has for them, they need to be renewed. They need to be restored as the covenant people of God. Um, Because we are entering into a new era. And that's really what chapter 5 is about, the inauguration of this new era for God's people, this new generation that is coming into the promised land. Um, And it begins with this important work of uh, of circumcision that's done among the people. Um, that, that re- reengages that, renews that covenant identity, and really helps to restore this new era. And so in these, little, in these three sections of chapter 5, there are pretty, three pretty obvious sections in this chapter, which breaks out nicely for the preacher uh, to take each one in its turn. Uh, we can think first about the new identity that they have in, in the Lord as they come into the land. As they are circumcised, they're really given a new identity as a people of God. Um, We see a new beginning for the people of God as they celebrate the first Passover in the land um, and start eating of that land that flows with milk and honey. And finally, they meet a new presence in the land as Joshua meets this somewhat mysterious figure, the commander of the army of the Lord. Um, And so we want to think about this new era that begins for the people of God and think of it in terms of the new identity, the new beginning, and the new presence we see in chapter 5. Where does God begin with His people as they enter into the promised land? Um, It begins with a new identity. It happens through this command that's given to Joshua to circumcise all of Israel. And the event itself is rather succinctly told to us, very brief. The command is issued in verse 2. The the event is carried out in verse 3. Perhaps we're happy not to have a whole lot of detail about chapter 3 or verse 3, but The the main thrust of what God wants to do here is explain what's happening. Um, There are are two verses that contain the command and the event, and then there are several verses that contain the explanation. Why is this important? Why is this significant? What does God mean to communicate to His people through this event? Um, And and so He takes the time to lay out in detail the reasons that this happens in verses 4 through 7. Uh, the first reason that we find out is that the generation that was born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. They had not received the covenant sign while they were in the wilderness. Um, even though the former generation went, into, uh, went out of Egypt in the exodus circumcised, the generation born in the wilderness was not circumcised. Um, and this is explained to us to remind God's people of something very important. In the first place, to remind them of the failure of the former generation. Um, What was the failure of the former generation that is really highlighted for us in this chapter? Their failure is this. They had the sign of faith. They didn't have the substance of it. They had the outward mark of faith on them, circumcision. But they had none of the substance of what it was supposed to signify dwelling in their hearts. They were were Christians, they were God's people in outward circumstance, but nothing having to do with their inner circumstances of the heart. And God had never meant for His covenant signs to operate that way. Uh, That's why God's people were repeatedly told in the wilderness, don't just be content to be circumcised, but circumcise your hearts. Make sure that this is not just an outward formality, but that it is testifying to an inward reality. Sacraments are still intended to work that way today. Um, we always want to say the purpose of a sacrament is to be received in faith. Um, and the sacrament without faith, that's never combined with faith, is not something we want to see done. We shouldn't be just marked outwardly and not have any inward effect of these things. And we're being reminded of the failure of that wilderness generation. They were marked as belonging to God outwardly, but they showed that they had no faith. And their lack of faith was seen in their lack of obedience. Right? Faith and obedience go together. We, we often talk about obedience being the fruit of faith. And if there is no faith, then there can be no fruit. And that's the sad reality about that wilderness generation, even though they had seen the wonders that God did in Egypt. They had seen with their own eyes the wonderful power of their God. In the plagues that He sent on Egypt, in the rescue He delivered them from in the Red Sea, the fact that they ate manna every day, that they were fed by meat from heaven, all the fact that they had received, all of these things, they saw those things and they didn't trust themselves to God's word. And they died in the wilderness, a disobedient people, right? That, that's the sad reminder we're given in verse 6. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, And what was the consequence of that disobedience? The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a sober reminder of the failure of the Egyptian generation. A sober reminder of what they had failed to do. And it's kind of seen in their failure to circumcise their children. Um, God was very angry with Moses when he had failed to circumcise his children. There was a time in Moses' life where he had left his children uncircumcised and the Lord came and said, I'm going to destroy you for doing that. And his wife had to sort of circumcise their boys on the run, um, for fear of what the Lord would do. It's a serious business. The Lord said, if you're not circumcised, it's a sign that you don't belong to my people. And if that sign is not in the members of your body, then you'll be cut off from the covenant people of God. It was a serious business. It's a serious testimony to their faithlessness that this generation was not circumcised, that they didn't embrace and trust in the promises of God. And so this comes as an important reminder to the new generation, an important important reminder to the church in every generation, not to let the marks of God be upon you without... The substance of what they're to signify. The faith that God calls his people to. One commentator said, you can have all the marks of the people of God but still lack faith. The proper response of the people of God. And we learn here you can even partake of the sacrament and yet have no faith. And that doesn't lead anywhere. It certainly doesn't lead to the promised rest. It leads to dying in in the wilderness. That's what the former generation pictured to them, and they experience the effects of it. Interestingly, one of the things that God seems to take particularly personally is when they say, you've brought us and our children out here to die in the wilderness. You have no thought for our little ones. It seems that God raises that a number of times in the wilderness, that it almost as if He takes that particularly personally that they would say, you don't care about our little ones. And here are their little ones coming into the land. The Lord does care about them. And so while the first reminder is a failure of that wilderness generation, the second reminder in this action that Joshua engages in in circumcising the people is to remind this people that they have a new identity. That in the midst of God's wrath, he has remembered mercy for this people. For this people did not die in the wilderness. God saw them through their sojourn and God brought them into the promised land just as He had promised to do. He had not let these little ones die in the wilderness and now they were grown up and they were coming in to the promised land and this was a sign that in the midst of wrath God had remembered mercy and God had raised up a new generation in place of the old. Right, Verse 7, So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. What is, what is the reminder here? This is the new generation that God has raised up of his people in place of the old. He has not forgotten his promise to the fathers. He has raised up a generation, and from this generation he has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Uh, This is what this place will forever mark for the people of God. Here is where God rolled away the reproach, where God saw to it that the covenant was kept and that this generation received the covenant sign and enjoyed fellowship with their God. When when they're done doing this, when Joshua has circumcised the people, what does God say? Now the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away. Um, Those former failures are... Forgotten, the disgrace of Egypt is forgotten once and for all. God has removed that disgrace that that had formerly haunted his people. And he does that through the act of circumcision. That they might receive the promise that God swore to their fathers to inherit the land flowing with milk and honey. And this too is important not only for that new generation but for all generations of God's people. Uh, to be reminded of the mercy of our God, to be reminded that we still serve this same God. We should be reminded not to repeat the mistakes of the wilderness generation, but we should be encouraged by the wonderful grace and mercy of our God who brings in a people that he might remake them and renew them. I think it's significant the, the, the process, the steps by which God does these events. He first brings them into the land, and then he renews them. He first brings them in, and then he renews them. He brings them in to make them a new people. That's, a, I think, an important reminder for us about the way God works. Because if they had to, if they had, had to wait to be a new people before they could cross in, it would say a very different message about the nature of, of God and how He relates to his people, that you can't come to me until you're worthy of me, but God works in the opposite direction. He brings in an uncircumcised people into the land, and then what does he do, having brought them in by His mercy? then he rolls away the reproach. then he makes them a new people. then he renews them in his covenant in his covenant promises. and isn't this a wonderful picture of what God does for sinners? In every generation. If we had to wait till we were worthy to come to God. We could never come to God. God brings us to himself and makes us worthy of him. He brings us to himself and makes us recipients of his covenant. Makes us what we are not. So that we might live. So that we might have a new identity. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us covenant breakers he has taken on himself the curse of the covenant breakers the reproach of the slaves that he might renew us and roll away our reproach roll that away from us raise us up and change our identities from sinners dead in sin and trespass to those who live and have fellowship with the living God it's all of grace God brought them in God renewed them. God restored them. They didn't do this for themselves. He did it for them. A new identity in God is all of His grace. It's the same thing He does in every generation. Takes people who have an old identity and rolls away the reproach. And gives them a new identity. This is a new era for the people of God. They have a new identity And they begin a new beginning in the land. Uh, It begins with the celebration of the Passover. So this new identity, this people that have been renewed and identified as a covenant people, they have a new beginning in the land. This renewal and restoration of circumcision then leads them to celebrate the first Passover in the promised land. Uh, we had talked about the last, in the last passage, the day was significant. It was the day that they were to choose the Passover lamb, and here we find them celebrating the Passover in Canaan in verse 10, the first Passover that is celebrated in the promised land. That's a significant moment for the people of God, to celebrate the Passover in the promised land, because being in the promised land was part and parcel to the promise of the first Passover. That one day they would do this, that Passover was being instituted in Egypt in the midst of their slavery to point to a reality that would be theirs. An exodus that was coming and an entrance into the promised land. God had promised both, both rescue and rest, both an entrance into the promised land and an exodus from slavery. He promised to bring them out and to bring them home. And he said, Passover will help you to remember that. God said this in Exodus chapter 12, 24 to 27. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. This generation, again, would not have been the generation that could remember the the first Passover. Um, But they were to to do this, and they expected that their children would ask, again, what does this mean? Um, Now, maybe not all the children would ask it so formally, what do you mean by this service, Father? Um, But it was expected that they would ask, right? What does this mean? Um, And what was it a reminder of? It was a reminder of God's justice and of God's mercy. It was a reminder that God had passed over in mercy the houses that were covered by the blood of the Lamb. That He had shown mercy and passed over in His wrath. And also a sign that He had visited judgment on those who were not protected under the blood of the Lamb. It was a reminder that His people were spared but that the Egyptians were struck. It's a reminder and a lasting reminder of both the justice and mercy of God. It meant death for Egypt. It meant life for God's people. And what made all the difference between life and death, between justice and mercy? It was the blood of the Lamb and the promise of the Lord. That's what made all the difference between life and death. Between justice and mercy, the blood of the Lamb, sacrifice for Israel, and that blood that caused the destroyer to pass over and spare the houses. And it was the promise of the Lord to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt and into the blessedness of Canaan. It's a perpetual reminder to God's people in that age of the difference between life and death is the blood of the Lamb and the promise of the Lord. And it would have been especially important to remember that for them on the plains of Jericho as they prepare to go to war. Um, Prepare to go to war with nations that were very strong. Um, People that their initial spies had come back and said, they're so strong and so big we can't possibly fight with them and win. Um, And here on... On the eve of battle, so to speak, before this war is engaged. How important was it to remember the Passover? To remember, you know, Egypt was a strong nation too. Much stronger than us. Much more capable in war. um, With soldiers and chariots that we couldn't have hoped to defeat in our own strength. And yet, the Lord God brought us out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Lord is powerful to save. The Lord is powerful to do what He's promised to do for His people. Uh, In a sense, God is spreading a table before them in the presence of His enemies here. He's doing exactly what we read about in Psalm 23. Here is the Passover spread right in the presence of their enemies, and they don't need to fear because God is with them. And this, in a sense, is the is the Christian footing in every generation, isn't it? We are part of the church militant. The fight is still being engaged in this world. We are still in a battle in this world. Uh, we are not yet home. Um, and what does God do for His people all the time? He spreads a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Uh, one Scottish minister said, "This is the status of the Christian life in every generation." Always the table, always the enemies. But why can we eat comfortably at that table in the presence of our enemies? Because God is with us. We have a good shepherd who is with us. And in these last days we understand who that shepherd is. The one who himself is the blood of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Who is the promise of God incarnate. Promising that he will deliver his people and rescue them. That he has received the justice of God that we might receive his mercy. Uh, That is who we know. That is who they trust. And we know that this is a new beginning for this people because of what we read in verses 11 and 12. And the day after the Passover on that very day they ate of the produce of the land. Unleavened cakes and parched grain. They continue to celebrate The feast of unleavened bread, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. They have truly entered the land flowing with milk and honey. Um, This is the sign that the new era has really begun, that there is a new beginning Because the manna stops raining down every day to provide them bread from heaven. I don't know how that strikes you to think about manna ending. Um, Maybe you think if I'd eaten manna for 40 years, maybe I'd be tired of it and be happy for something else, anything else. Um, Maybe it sounds kind of bittersweet to us that here is this food by which God fed them every day. Where you could go out and be reminded of that daily bread that God had sent down for you on that day. Um, And it sounds a little bittersweet to think of that moment ending. Uh, But why does that moment of extraordinary bread come to an end? Because God has brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. That was never meant to be a perpetual thing. It was always a sign that they were still wandering, still sojourning, still without a land of their own. And so when it stops, what does it signal? You've come home. You've come into a land flowing with milk and honey. You no longer need the bread directly from heaven because now God has provided it to you in this land. They ate of the produce of the land and the manna ceased. It should have been encouraging them to see that new beginning. It should encourage us to see that new beginning in this people of God. Because this generation is a very different generation than the Egypt generation. They have replaced a generation that was unbelieving and disobedient and corrupt. And they will show themselves to be a believing and an obedient and a blessed generation. It should be encouraging for them. It should be encouraging for us to see that. Uh, that the church can have new beginnings from time to time. There have always been times when the church seems corrupted or the church seems malformed, um, where the church seems in a bad state in the world and the Lord can renew it. There can be new beginnings, new reformations, new revivals in the church, and that should be an encouragement to us. The church can pass from persecution to acceptance as it did in the days of Constantine. It can pass from days of darkness into light as it did during the Reformation. Um, there, are, there are great days that can come for the church. We should always be hopeful about the next generation. Now, maybe it's because we're Calvinists that we're good about being negative about what awaits the next generation. Um, we expect the worst, and we're never disappointed. Um, but as Calvinists who believe deeply in the sovereignty of a good God, we should be hopeful for the next generation. We should be hopeful. Um, I think of the words of Thomas, Man- of Thomas Brooks, um, who preached a farewell sermon to his congregation in 1662 in England before the Great Ejection took place. It was called the Great Ejection because the laws for the government had changed about ministers and all the ministers who were unwilling to adopt the government changes were going to be expelled from their pulpits. And some 2,000 plus reformed ministers were expelled from their pulpits on one Sunday. Uh, One Sunday they they preached, and the next Sunday they'd all been expelled uh, by the government from their pulpits. And Thomas Brooks was preaching what he knew was a farewell sermon to his congregation uh, in that dark day. And this is one of the things that he said that I think we do well to remember. He said to his congregation, when it is nearest day, then it is darkest. There may be an hour of darkness that may be upon the gospel as to its liberty purity, and glory, and yet there may be a sun-shining day ready to tread on the heels of it. Uh, In the midst of darkness, we should be reminded of that. Sometimes it's dark because it's nearest day. Um, Sometimes it's because the night is far gone and the day is at hand. There's always a sun-shining day ready to tread on the heels of any dark day, and we should not lose hope as the people of God. Um, And and I hope this generation that's coming will be a reminder of that fact to us. You can't do much worse than the generation in Egypt did. But the generation that follows them may well be the high watermark of the people of God. This is a faithful generation. This is a faith-filled generation through whom God does powerful things. This is a new beginning. There's no reason for us to be a pessimistic people. Um, And one of the reasons this this people had so much reason to hope is not just because they had a new identity and a new beginning, but there was a new presence that was with them. And Joshua meets that presence here at the end of chapter 5. Joshua is doing his work as a military commander going and scouting out the first place they are going to need to fight with in Jericho. And we find him at the end of chapter 5 scouting out Jericho, and he meets a mysterious presence. The whole of this story is meant to convey the sort of mysteriousness of this presence. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Um, Not just standing before him, but really facing him down is, is kind of the way it's put. Um, and Joshua doesn't know who this is. Now, if you have a drawn sword in your hand, I'm no expert, but it seems to me that means you're ready to fight with someone. And so it's something, I think, to Joshua's courage uh, that he, you know, doesn't back down. He he faces this guy and says, okay, uh, what do you want? Uh, He asks him, you know, the, the prudent question, are you for us or for our adversaries? Another way of translating this would be to say, do you belong to us or do you belong to them? Friend or foe? Do you belong to us or do you belong to them? And the reason this is somewhat mysterious is that the first thing he says is no. Um, that seems like a, an illegitimate answer, doesn't it? Who, are, who do you belong to? You can only belong to two groups, us or them. No is not an answer, right? And it shows how he's thinking and how we would be thinking in a similar situation. Either you are with us or you're with them. So what do you mean no? How can you not belong to us or to them? And the answer becomes clear. I don't belong to you and I don't belong to them. In fact, you all belong to me. That's the answer he really gives. I don't belong to you, and I don't belong to them. You all belong to me. Because he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have now come. Um, The army of the Lord, whenever it's spoken of in the Bible, is the heavenly host. The army of the Lord is always that army that is sort of amazing to think about. An army that consists of chariots and horsemen and fire who move around like the whirlwind. Right? Even the, the forces of nature are occasionally conscripted into this army to serve the purposes of the army of the Lord. It's never used to describe the human army, it's always used to describe the heavenly host, the heavenly army. Um, and the heavenly army itself is glorious. To think about, but that's not where our attention is directed, not to the army itself, but to this one who says, I am the commander of that army. I am the captain of that army. I am its chief commander. Um, I am the supreme commander of the Lord's army. Um, And who is the supreme commander of the Lord's army? It's the angel of the Lord, it's the Son of God. This is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Joshua. Uh, Michael is a mighty lieutenant in the army of the Lord. He is not its captain. He's not its commander. Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. Um, And that is conveyed to Joshua that actually you both belong to me. And I have now come as the commander of the army of the Lord. And what he's come to do is clear. He's got a drawn sword in his hand. He's come himself to fight for his people. How that must have been an encouragement to Joshua. As he thinks about the warfare before him. As he thinks about the high walls of Jericho. And maybe thinks about how they're going to possibly breach those high thick walls around that city. To be reminded that the army and the, the army's success does not depend on Joshua and his effort and his exertion, but the battle belongs to the Lord. What an encouragement that must have been to him because he realizes who he's speaking with, he reacts immediately with obedience. When the commander of the army of the Lord identifies himself, what does Joshua do? He falls on his face to the earth and worshiped him. That's how we know this has to be God himself appearing before Joshua. Because if you bow down to an angel, an angel will immediately tell you, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. But here Joshua falls down, he worships him, and he asks for marching orders. He's a good soldier. What does my Lord say to his servant? And the command is interesting. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now that should have reminded us of something. It should have reminded us of a scene from the history of God's people. It certainly would have reminded Joshua of a scene. That's what God told Moses to do at the burning bush. Take off your sandals for where you're standing is holy. And it's an indication to Joshua this is the same holy presence that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And what was Moses told there? In Exodus 3, 7 and 8, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the one who did deliver them out of bondage. In Egypt, And now he stands with a sword in his hand saying, And now I've come to bring you into the promised land. What an encouragement that must have been to Joshua. That the commander of the Lord's army fought for the people of God. And again, that should be an encouragement to us too. Not just as we think about this as a story from back in the history of God's people. It should be an encouragement to us to remind us that the commander of the Lord's army still fights for his people. He's always been the one who's been fighting for his people. He's always the one who has brought victory to his people by his mighty right hand. Um, He's still the person who fights for the church. Our Lord Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. It's a reminder to us the victory does not depend on us. We have a commander who fights for us. And who has won the victory for us by his cross. Jesus Christ is the commander of the Lord's army, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He has conquered by his cross, and he's coming again in glory to bring the fulfillment of that kingdom that he has won. We have a commander who fights for us, who's already shown his great power by defeating our enemies on the cross. Just as like he already demonstrated his great power to Joshua by bringing them out of Egypt in the first place so they could be assured that he would do what he promised to bring them into the land of rest. So we too have seen what Christ has done by the power of his cross in breaking sin and canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And we can be sure that when he comes again in glory, he will save us as those who love him and earnestly see him. So let us not forget that the commander of the Lord's army fights for his people even today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the hope of our people. He has come once, and he is coming again soon. And so we say together, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the commander of your army has always been the help and the hope of your people. And So many of your people prayed for and hoped for the day when his star would come out of Jacob and his scepter would arise out of Israel to exercise dominion and destroy the enemies of your people. We thank you that in the fullness of time Christ was born, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were in bondage to sin that we might receive adoption as sons. Alone and by his own might, he has won the victory for your people by his cross. And we thank you that he is coming again soon, not to deal with our sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Father, help when we feel that our days are dark in the midst of this crooked and depraved generation, remind us of the day of his coming glory. Remind us that the night is far gone and that the day is at hand. Remind us that soon the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Hear us for the sake of your Son and your Army's commander, our dear Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's take up our Psalter hymnals and as a song of response, stand and sing All gl- Glory, Laud, and Honor, number 325. We'll sing all the verses of number 325 together. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts to the Lord now and receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. People of God, go in peace.